Welcome, all you weirdos, Krakoans, and everyone pretending to be interstellar majestrixes, or maybe the plurals majestrices. Anyway, my name is Jason, and here with me as always is Ruben. Ruben, how is your morphogenic feel today? I'm doing pretty good, Jason. I, I have Glad some weird hear. envy. I saw you on oh, uh, the you? podcast with Rocky, and you guys look pretty uh, dapper. Wow, thank you. Yeah, that <laughs> was a nice, nice beard. I cannot grow something as as massive and well groomed as that. So kudos. <laughs> well, if that's not a promo, I don't know what is. So yes, I was I was going to mention that. Yeah, but thank you for bringing it up. Uh, this past weekend, I was uh, lucky to be a guest on the show Comic Boom with fellow Get Fresh crew member Rocky to talk about some indie comics. So anyone who wants to check that out or my apparently massive beard, you can uh, just search out Comic Boom, B-O-O-M, on your YouTube app. Uh, it was my first time talking comics on video. So I'm, I'm a YouTuber now. I'm, I'm going to be too big for podcasts soon, so enjoy this while you can. Uh, I even used a prop during the discussion of one title, so I guess I'm a prop comic now too. I guess somebody needs to fill that empty space left left by Gallagher, R.I.P. Yeah, yeah, you got a new gig going. Don't forget us little people when you're uh, smashing watermelons. I think watermelons are taken. I'm going to have to move on to no, cantaloupes, eggplants. I'm, I'm, I've got a whole notebook full of ideas of things to smash. So any ideas, you know, hit me up on, on the Twitter. Uh, yeah, so the second bit of news I'm going to get to is a little more X-Men related, not only slightly X-Men related. There is technically an X-Men-related event going on right now. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. Yep. Another one, it's not Sins of Sinister. That doesn't start until January. I'm talking about something called Dark Web. So, Ruben, what do you what do you know about this Dark Web situation? Um, I do. I know it exists. <laughs> I think you're ahead of most people. Yes, I, I read the Ben Riley, the, the recent Ben Riley story with um, Zeb Wells, who I've always enjoyed as a writer since his time on Hellions. So I guess that's what a year. <laughs> I guess not like I'm a huge Zeb Wells fan, but uh, I thought he's been okay on Amazing. Um, and I thought the Ben Riley story was at least interesting. But I am curious, how, how does that tie into X-Men at all, other than just wanting to do a cross-collaboration? Premise is a clone team-up. I guess that makes sense. You've got various clone characters around the X-Men universe. So this event takes Ben Riley. And has him gets together with another X Men clone, Madeline Pryor, aka mm. the Goblin Queen, clone of Jean Grey, former yeah. girlfriend of most, if not all, of the uh, the Summers brothers. I don't know all the details, but yeah, so they're they're getting together. She's recently been put in charge of Limbo. She's the Queen of Limbo now. Uh, Magic gave up that title. That happened in issues of New Mutants that. We haven't actually covered on this program, but that's where that took place. And gotcha. yeah, they're teaming up and doing some more Inferno-type shenanigans with demons all over the place. So I, I've read what's come out so far. So there's the main storyline, and there's also a tie-in comic called Dark Web X-Men. So that's going to be a three-issue X-Men thing. And the whole event is, I'd call it aggressively goofy. Like it's going, <laughs> It's going out of its way just to say, yeah, this is not serious. This is not going to matter. For instance, right now, demons from Limbo have invaded the area around Rockefeller Center in Manhattan, started eating people, you know, which, which seems pretty serious. The X-Men are around, and they do that thing where they, around Christmas, X-Men writers like to put the X-Men around Rockefeller Center. If you've heard some of uh, our buddy Chris's coverage on uh, the Cosmic Treadmill and other, other shows on that channel, he likes to talk about the X-Men on Christmas. Some really great Christmas shows there. And it was good to see the X-Men, you know, doing their thing around Rockefeller Center. You see the sights and see the tree. Uh, but in this case, these demons are infecting inanimate objects with demonic energy by, I think, 
just kind of like a pigeon and just defecating on them. So, for instance, a demon flies onto the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree, you know, the, that great big Christmas tree in front of the skating rink. Sure. We see sound effects spell out poop. It just says P-O-O-P. And then the tree itself comes to life with a big R on it. Okay. So, yeah, that level. The tree ends up getting frozen solid by Iceman, but not before it eats a passing Santa Claus. And I think that's supposed to have been the real Santa because he was on a flying sleigh and all. And then Spider-Man assures a, a small child that, yeah, don't worry, quote, Santa's a mutant and the X-Men are going to resurrect him in their Keebler treehouse. So okay. if that sounds good to you. Be very campy. I, I get it. Yeah. If, if that sounds like what you want to read for the holidays and, you know, I, I can see how it could be some people's cup of tea. You can check that out. That's the Dark Web X-Men tie-in and the other Dark Web things. There's like one kickoff Dark, Man, dark Web uh, issue and one tie up, you know, tie everything up at the end and everything else is going through Amazing Spider-Man and Venom and this tie-in issue. And I think there's going to be a tie-in series for Miss Marvel too, because Miss Marvel, Kamala Khan is somehow an intern in uh, Norman Osborn's possibly evil business. You know, I'll probably check it out, honestly, but I am now on the three-month delay plan with Spider-Man, so... Talk to me in three months. <laughs> Not very timely. Is he still? Is Ben Riley still going by Chasm? He is. He's he's Chasm, or possibly Chasm. His <laughs> his girlfriend gets a whole new secret super evil identity too. Uh, she's had like eight names now. I don't even know what to call her anymore. Yeah. yeah oh, she's she's something very very silly this time. So the the art in the tie in issue is by or the the X Men tie in book is by Rod Reese, and it does look really good. So. If you like Rod Reese art, that's a reasonable enough reason to pick up the book. But this is probably the last time we'll mention the event on our podcast, unless somehow it ends up having a mean, meaningful effect on the larger Percoen story. But that seems unlikely. Yeah, I can't imagine that being anything. Maybe it's something with Madeline Pryor, but I don't know. She doesn't even seem that central anymore. If somehow that ends up being something. But again, that tied into New Mutants. And I'm not sure if New Mutants is even continuing. There's a uh, solicit for the December issue coming out in like uh, right after Christmas, like just over a week from when we're recording. But I don't see any solicits after that. So I'm not sure. Maybe that title is either going on hiatus or maybe they're going to bring in another writer. I don't know. So if anyone knows news about that, you know, also get at me and let us know. Off, is it right around that time? It's in January. Yeah. So, so maybe all the books are on break for a little bit. We're going to be getting one more issue of Red and one more issue of uh, Immortal and one more issue of Legion before it kicks off. Because when the, when the Sins of Sinister kicks off, all those books are going hiatus or getting retitled, depending how you want to look at it, and they're going away for three months. So we get, we get one more issue of those three big books, and then Sins of Sinister takes over. So it's coming soon, but it's not quite here yet. Yeah. All right, that's enough of the news and that jibber jabber. I think we're going to get right to our books. Yeah, right to our books, he said. Okay, uh, we'll get to X Men Red first. This is, of course, written by our man Al Ewing with art by Stefano Caselli. And last time out, just to remind people, we learned that Abigail Brandt had been behind all sorts of behind the scenes shenanigans, trying to maneuver the soul system into a position of power in the galaxy and not coincidentally herself into a position of power behind everything. Her move now is to provoke a war between the Shi'ar and the Kree Skrull Empire by just tossing an unstable Gabriel Summers into the delicate negotiations. Meanwhile, Cable has gotten wise to brand schemes and taken a small team of his own to investigate her connection to these aliens called the Progenitors, 
who live in a place called the World Farm. And again, progenitors, as far as we know, not related at all to the celestial call of progenitor, just an unfortunately similar name. So he was there. They ran into a hostile Orbis Stellaris, who, remember, according to some theories, may be another Nathaniel Essex clone. Boy, complicated book. Now, when you, when you lay it all out like that, isn't it? A lot of stuff going on. And there's more in this issue when we get to the part with Orbis Stellaris that really makes me think that that theory is spot on. Okay, well, we were gonna we're gonna go to that scene first. Actually, you know, I like to do things out of order for some reason. It just makes me happy to make things complicated. So we're going to start off with a bit about Cable and Friends, and this is just one fairly brief scene, which is why I'm going to get this out of the way first. Uh, so they're fighting Orbis Dolaris, who might be a clone with Alan Essex, but definitely is wearing some kind of robot body. Cable, Cora, and Thunderbird. <coughs> Sorry about that. Cable, Core, and Thunderbird make short work of the robot body's robot tendons, and they, they call out tendons, and do robots have tendons? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm no roboticist, but I don't think they do exactly. Maybe tendon-like structures, but we'll go with it. So Orbis Dolaris has to call on additional help. He says, rise my heralds, your creator commands, because that's how he talks in this book. And this wakes up those three creepy aliens we saw in those stasis pods last time out. And these being the same three creepy aliens that messed with Vulcan's mind way back in that flashback Hitman put, Hickman wrote for X-Men number 10. Uh, so these aliens take an immediate interest in Manifold, and they, they do something to him. What, what do you think is going on here? What, yeah, it looks like he's getting deconstructed, roughly, like somehow taken apart. And I think, you know, I haven't read the, uh, was it War of Kings or something like that, that series? That's sort of next on my backlog reading agenda. but I. I think they may have done something similar to this to um, Vulcan. It does seem like that. So I'm not sure what they're going to do with Manifold, but Cable seems pretty concerned about it. He seems worried about what Manifold might do to all of them. So I guess he thinks that Manifold is being turned against them. That's all we get from Cable and company this yeah. issue. I, I do think that this is the scene that shows you that the Orbis Stellaris is definitely an Essex clone sitting inside So what the makes board. you think that? It's the... You know, talking about the violent deaths. So we've seen in um, in that last issue of Immortal that, uh, for whatever reason, uh, Sinister likes to cause violent deaths versus just, I'm going to kill you or take you out or whatever. Oh, that's true. There were lots of violent deaths in that last Immortal, for sure. He likes messy deaths. <laughs> and, and I've been looking at the um, couple back issues where he's um, killing people and he always talks about you know, making it messy. Okay, a little more evidence on the sinister clone pile. So elsewhere in the issue, the issue actually starts off with a flashback to Vulcan's latest resurrection, which I, I think is probably his first resurrection because he's always been insistent about he never died, like in that, that King's event when we yes. thought he was killed. Yeah, he just came but back. In this book, we saw Vulcan get killed by Tarn the Uncaring after challenging for a seat on the Great Ring. So that was that death. And we don't get precise timing on this resurrection, but it seems to be pretty recent. We get a data page with Xavier arguing that they need to move Vulcan to the front of the resurrection queue because with Magneto's death, so this is after Magneto's death, the X-Men are kind of underpowered on the, you know, Omega ass kicker side of things. And we also learn that Abigail Brand is pushing for Vulcan's quick resurrection. So that's also part of her plan because she wants to use him to, you know, mess up the galaxy. Xavier plans on performing some telepathic behavioral therapy on Gabriel's mind to make him a little less like antisocial, trying to do, I guess, kind of what was supposed to happen with Hellions, but more of a direct you know, surgery kind of way, which is another case of Xavier being really, really sketchy, but also seeing himself, he, seeing himself as being 
perfectly above board. So that's moving that whole Xavier's kind of a jerk thing forward a little bit. So this resurrection goes kind of off the rails, right? Instead of breaking out of a shell like your typical resurrected mutant, Vulcan just burns his way out with fire. Okay, that, that's that's on brand. Not, not on brand, just on brand. Uh, and instead of Xavier restoring Vulcan's latest Cerebro backup the way it's supposed to go, we're told that a Vulcan just reaches out mentally and takes it himself. Yeah, so okay? I guess he's got the Emperor Vulcan hyper-aggro world conqueror personality. Yeah. That sort of has come back. Those creepy aliens had said something about there being a thin shell of goodness covering up the, the power-hungry nature beneath. So I guess- when he's resurrected now, he actually says, specifically, the shell is broken. And so we don't know exactly what happens between that moment and when he appears in the negotiation room, but it, it feels like he kind of goes directly from one to the other. I don't know how Xavier and everyone else is reacting to that. Maybe we'll find out. Maybe we won't. This, I mean, this works for me. Having read the um, Rise and Fall of Shi'ar Empire mini and comparing that Vulcan to the one that showed up in the Hickman era where he was, you know aggressive but you know friendly and i didn't exactly you know understand how you got from a to b mm-hmm. and i was just like well there must be something in between i haven't read yet and so i think this this works for me right like he came back being a little bit better adjusted but once this happened the underlying emperor vulcan you know wants revenge on the world for- i didn't even really call him well adjusted before he was just kind of he was willing to be part of the team was going to try, or at least he was sulking. He was kind of talking to himself. He was making up imaginary friends that could actually move around. I understand he had mental problems. Yeah. (laughs) I understand all that, but even the fact that he could be in the same room and not just being, you know, incinerating people and insisting on being in charge of everything was uh, right. He wasn't trying to take over yet. Cut two, where now in that uh, negotiation room there on Krakoa in the diplomatic zone, and we get some, you know, posturing back and forth with Vulcan proclaiming he's ready to take active control of, quote, his Shi'ar empire again, because he thinks he's still the emperor. He also makes brief reference to a long ago story where Deathbird was pregnant with his child. I don't think we know what happened to that kid, but here we get confirmation that the kid exists, I guess, because Deathbird says the kid is somewhat safe. Vulcan asks about his son, very specifically his son, but Deathbird carefully refers to our child. So, Make of that what you will. Maybe she doesn't just want to doesn't want to give him any information on whether it was a boy or a girl, anything. Yeah. Do you think that's going to come back, or is that just a little throwaway? Hey, people who read that old thing is still around. Yeah, I'm not even sure when that happened. I mean, I did see their relationship in Rise and Fall, but that there was no indication that there was a child at that point. So that must be like a War of Kings development, or maybe it happened sometime afterwards. But yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I, I did like the you know bringing back up that they were married at some point. And had a relationship. And I did appreciate that this Emperor Vulcan character was kind of calling her out for being um, kind of a, a line tower at this point, you know, working yeah, with Yeah, she's the- acting a little more subservient to the Majestrix than you would expect someone named Deathbird and with a history of Deathbird to actually be. She's been kind of a troublemaker. Yeah, she's often been depicted as somebody trying to either take over the Emperor from Lalandra um, and then later was just trying to bring back... I can't remember what the guy's name is, the the, the previous Shi'ar Empire Emperor, um, who uh, Vulcan ended up killing. Uh, but she frequently was, was shown as trying to bring back a more brutal 
version of the Shi'ar Empire. Mm -hmm. And I mean, maybe this is foreshadowing that something is going on in the background because we find out later in the issue that there's a bit of a shenanigan happening. So the Vulcan, the violence, you know, breaks out right away now with Vulcan using his energy powers to shut down the confidence in Gladiator's brain. Confidence being what powers Strontians, kind of like Green Lanterns and willpower, I guess. So Gladiator just like collapses in a heap. <clears throat> Sorry about all these coughs. I'm trying to cut them out, but not doing so good. Next, Vulcan takes down Nova and Pybok and Frenzy, one after the other, really easily, and then knocks down Nova again. That's twice for him. All this while Brand watches remotely, like from cameras and microphones and things, but chooses to ignore their calls for help because this chaos is exactly what she wants. And all this time, we see the Majestrix, Neramani, in the background, just kind of lounging on her throne, kind of looking very unconcerned. Now Vulcan turns his fire on the Majestrix, and surprisingly, this does not result in a burned-out corpse of a princess. Uh, what does this fire do? Well, it turns out that it's Sunspot-wearing, uh, I guess, a hollow projector uh, pretending to be the Empress, and so he just absorbs Vulcan's energy, and then he talks a lot of trash. <laughs> he does, yeah. This is the, the big reveal here. Now, there had been some hints on, if you, if you follow the writer's social media and things, you're, you, you kind of knew something was coming with Roberto, and you know he was hinting at it too. You know, in this book especially, he's not been kind of the, the goofy guy he's been shown to be in like early issues of New Mutants or other things. He's, he's more of a solid plotter, planner of himself now. He's still kind of goofy, but he's, he's doing something. The other thing that's interesting is uh, at the early issues of Hickman's New Mutant run, uh, he ended up hooking up with Deathbird also. So you have kind of a- That's true. That's true. X and recent X <laughs> dynamic between the two of them. It's a weird little triangle. So we get another data page, this one from Berto's own secret files. This is just a sillier version of the page from Abigail Brand's files we saw last time out. He's not hooked up with cable. They seem to be completely independent of each other. But he's figured out on his own that Abigail Brand must be up to something, and it probably has to do with fermenting a war between these two powers, and so he decides to show up here in disguise. Now, just like we don't know what happened in between uh, Vulcan's resurrection and this room, we don't know what happened with Roberto before this room. Like, who else knows that this was him? Did uh, did the Deathbird and everybody else there already know, or was this a surprise to them too? Yeah, it seems like she knew. Uh, and I would say he's part of the Iraqi inner circle now, right? He's I forget which seat he occupies, but he's he's on one of the house houses. So mm -hmm. I would guess that anyone in that uh, Iraqi leadership group would know, which I think explains the final part a little bit. Someone who definitely doesn't know is Abigail Brand. Correct. Now, she's she's watching as this happens, and, and she looks horrified because she thought that she was about to see the Majestrix just get you know, assassinated, which she kind of wanted. And when it doesn't happen, she knows something in her careful plans has gone seriously awry, which she is not used to. She's used to her plans working out perfectly. So we get this kind of brief stare down trash talk between Vulcan and Roberto and ends with, ends with Vulcan just choosing to kind of fly off. And we get some talk afterwards where if it had come to a full on battle, Vulcan being you know on Omega and all could have toasted Roberto to a crisp. So Roberto is kind of lucky that Vulcan decided to just, you know, F off. Yeah, he was totally bluffing, like he always does. He's a big, big mouth, basically. I think he's an interesting character, and the characterizations of him are great, but he's also a character I can't stand. 
I mean, it's like a character I like because I don't like him. If <laughs> gotcha. that makes sense. But you like reading about him, you would not want to hang out with the guy, I think. Correct. Yeah. He's like super annoying. I think we've all had a friend or like a almost friend who has qualities kind of like that, or yeah. he has some some cool things to be around that other times it just gets really on your nerves. Yes. Yes. So where does where does Vulcan go now? Uh, basically, where this is Autumn Palace. I guess that's the thing I don't understand. I'm guessing it's some Shi'ar location. Actually, Autumn Palace is that building that Magneto made to be his home on Arako. Now, this has barely been lived in because, you know, Magneto kind of built it and then shortly thereafter, you know, died in that whole event we just had. So, I'm not sure exactly why Vulcan knows to go there. Yeah, that part's weird. But he does leave saying, like, I know exactly where she is if she's not right here. He said maybe he senses her energy there. He senses something. His energy powers have gotten less distinct to me. I mean, they've gotten more and more powerful. We learned he can create those, you know, almost android, you know, fake people thing. And so his powers are so unclear they could do kind of anything. He is he is Omega. He on we see that he goes there, he senses someone, and then on the page turn, the final page turn, we see he's not confronting Naramani, he's confronting Storm. Who I guess is back on Mars now. So that is going to be our <coughs> damn it. <coughs> so I guess that's going to be where we pick up next time. And that issue is going to be called "Welcome to the New Age," which, like I mentioned earlier, is going to be the final issue of Red before everything kind of goes crazy for three months for Sins of Sinister. And this book will become something called "Storm and the Brotherhood of Mutants," which makes me think that at least some of these plot lines are going to be tied up next issue, so that we have kind of a soft ending before we kind of take a break for three whole months. Maybe Ewing kind of shot himself in the foot on this conflict because as soon as I saw Storm, I thought there's no way that Vulcan stands a chance. This does not look like, like a, oh, is she going to survive thing? At least in my mind, we've seen her take out so many people that were pretty tough. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah, she's she's been a badass, but we don't know exactly what this new out-of-his-shell Vulcan is capable of. So it's at least it's going to be an interesting fight. Yeah. I, I need to read War of Kings. I guess that's what I'll try to do before the next issue, because maybe then I'll think, you know, Emperor Vulcan's a big threat. But um, I guess having read Deadly Genesis and then Rise and Fall, it's like, okay, he's all he does is just lose. Well, maybe he's due, like, uh, like gamblers would say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would surprise me if he, if he won, but I, I don't think he seems much of a chance. It does feel like Abigail Brand had a peak and now her plans are on the way down the slope. So I would think that things are going to go wrong for her. Just like dramatically, the way fiction works, it seems like she's had her she's had her turn and it's going to be all the way down for now. Mm-hmm. So if he wins, it's going to be him winning in a way that still, I would expect, doesn't make her so happy. So what did we think of this issue? For me, the, the main event here is that twist, that big reveal that Majestrix is really sunspot. I'm a little disappointed we only got about four pages with that whole cable and crew, and I hope that plot thread gets some more action before the title goes away for a while. The art here is is quite good. Vulcan's fire is very, you know, dangerous looking, very fiery looking, which sometimes fire in comic books can be a little on the lame side, but here it looks it looks it looks hot, it looks dangerous. And Caselli really also sells the emotions in everyone's face especially when that sunspot switcheroo comes around. <clears throat> so between the art and the twist and the characterizations for everyone from Gabriel to Roberto to Brand and even Xavier, I'm going to give this issue an 8.3 out of 10. How about you? I think I'm more in the 7.5 range. 
I, I hear everything you're saying and that's good. But in my mind, this is one of those necessary um, just kind of action issues. And generally speaking, for me, those are just quick flip through pages. And I guess the reveals, um, I don't know, for some reason, I just kind of like I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. But it wasn't like emotionally like, oh, crap. Wow, that surprises me. Um, and sometimes Ewing is able to get me to really bite and be surprised. So it was a good issue. Maybe seven five is unfair. Maybe I'll just say an eight. But yeah, um, you can call whatever you want. It's your score. <laughs> seven five. Right turn, Clyde. I don't think I don't think we have an official nickname for the seven point five. Right turn, Clyde. Chris Migrate six. The special fives. I think Jim had some name for a seven. I forget what he called it. He'll probably fill it in here. Succotash. But we need. We should. I don't know if we have to name everything. Like we're a bingo caller. Seven five is not a bad score. Right turn, Clyde. Seven five is like you're reading this. This at least in my mind, you're reading the story. It's good. It's better than like an average book. But um, I don't think I'm going to remember this. If we're talking scoring philosophy, I kind of for me a seven. Succotash. Is like a completely okay book. Like I read it. It didn't annoy me. I might not ever think about it again, but it was it was fine. Where anything above that is like, hey, this is pretty good. I might recommend it to somebody. And anything below that is, hey, this book had some problems. So seven point five. Right turn, Clyde. Yeah, it was it was it was pretty good. It had some good stuff. It's not going to be a world beater. It's not going to be something I'm going to recommend for like award season time. But it was a good story that got us job done. I did really like the the single page with Roberta sitting in the chair and the fire burning everywhere. He looked pretty cool in that one. I was like that. We talk about like you know single pages that you just print and put on a wall. In my mind, that's a pretty cool one. Okay, so that is our X Men Red number. What was this again? X Men Red number nine. Now we're moving on to uh, Legion of X number eight. This is written by Cy Spurrier and art by I go with Nitho Diaz. I probably said Netho last time. This time I'm going to go with Nitho. I'm not really sure. Not a name I've ever read before. And this is an artist who came on the book in number seven. And I wasn't super crazy about it last time. I thought some of his faces looked kind of wonky and goofy. But this time, I thought it was, it was much better. I'm, I'm thinking that he was just trying to make those astral plane locations look kind of astrally and, and dreamlike. That's right. Yep. So this book, uh, this issue takes place off of the astral plane. And everything to me looks much crisper. Not realistic exactly, but the proportions don't make me go, what's going on here? Less exaggeration. So in this book, when last we left our heroes, Nightcrawler had grown some horns. And then he died, and then he came back with even bigger horns. Something to do with his morphogenic field being all out of whack. Uh, And Banshee, who's had a rough time of it of late, you know, his ex-girlfriend killing and skinning him, you know, that'll that'll mess you up a bit, I think. Resurrect or no resurrection. So he had accepted an offer from a being of the astral plane, a mother righteous, and this bonded him with a spirit of variance, who turns out to be a spirit of vengeance, who decided he wasn't so into the vengeance thing anymore. So in their combined form, they call themselves Vox Ignis, which means something like Voice of the Fire. Now... Nightcrawler and Pixie had followed a reading of a similar morphological signal to the X-Corp headquarters, a X-Corp, where they found the Black Knight, Jackie Chopra version, and a horribly birdified angel having a, a fight. So, once again, to go out of order, before we get back to Nightcrawler and company, I'm going to start off with that one scene that takes place on Krakoa. So here we have Legionnaires Juggernaut, Lost, and Forget-Me-Not. Remember him? Uh, they're heading to an area near Nightcrawler's home, which here is called the Narthex. I think this is the first time Nightcrawler's home is given a name, 
narthex means like the entrance hall as you walk into a church. So making that whole Nightcrawler church connection again. Have you, have we seen this name before? I don't know if we've seen the name, but we've certainly seen the building and the fact that it didn't have an obvious door to get into it. I, I think that happened very early you in the You see him like perched on top like Batman with a gargoyle. That's that place, right? I think I think it might have been the very first. It might have even been Hawksbox, basically, where they were building all the structures for everybody. That sounds right. Yeah. Very early, at least. We haven't seen it in a while. So here, our Legionnaires find a dazed and confused Doug Ramsey. He's kind of definitely not himself, wandering around like he's been to the, the Green Lagoon a little too much. Maybe he's been hanging out with, uh, with oh, I forget her name. Who is, who is, uh, who is our, our X-Files? Not X-Files. Good grief. Our X-Force drunkard who hangs out at the Green Lagoon too much. You totally <laughs> messed up my brain by <laughs> saying X-Files. Um, oh my God, what's the name? Uh, the truth is out there, and everyone is already yelling at their podcast Jillian catcher. Anderson, that's her name, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, but I mean that the X-Files one, who's teamed up now with Omega Red, and they're going to their 12-step programs together. You said X-Files again. <laughs> well, this is now an X-Files podcast, so <laughs> next time everyone watch that one episode with Charles Nelson Riley. That was my favorite. Anyway, we've been off several tangents now. It doesn't matter who it is because Doug Ramsey is not actually drunk. He's just confused. <clears throat> so, yeah, like, like you said, Ruben, there's no way, obviously, to get into this house, but they think the call is coming from inside the house. So Juggernaut, being the type to headbutt first and ask questions later, tries to juggernaut his way into the narthex, and he bounces off with a big humorous boing sound, which is an odd bit because didn't Juggernaut used to be an actual tough badass like a long time ago, like when he was in Spider-Man comics? Yeah, it's a little strange to me. I mean, he used to be the unstoppable force, right? And it was always a huge deal if something could stop him, so I don't quite understand how he couldn't go through this. Yeah, lately he's been a real a comic relief type character, and even in his own series, and again in here, he's he's not here to be taken seriously, which is kind of unfortunate. And yeah, yeah I don't know, is there something specially magical about the Narthex that lets it resist Juggernaut and the you know the Crimson Bands of Sidorak and all those things? And and, and another weird bit, while we're on weird bits. Uh, Lost, who is that really ultra-lanky uh, mutant with the gravity powers, she says that there's a portal entrance right around the corner, and she kind of implies that this portal is used by people arriving at night for a little nightcrawler booty call situation. Is it, Am I reading into that, or is that what the book no, was trying to say? that's exactly what it's saying. Yeah. Yikes. And I would say, I mean, it is consistent with Nightcrawler. He's always been a Flanderer, which has been like a you know, juxtaposition to his like hyper Catholic okay. religious elements, but um, it's a little, I don't know. <laughs> it always makes me feel a little weird when I read that in a comic. I'm hoping this is going to be like that one data page on the on the moon showing, you know, how Gene and Wolverine and Scott were all kind of connected to each other and they don't really mention that too much ever again. I hope that it's just like that, kind of thrown in for people to go, ooh, and then we we move on. Well, speaking moving on, before they can do anything else, our heroes here are, are met by Banshee, who says that actually he's the one who called for help, which is weird because I don't know what their system is, but you would think that if Banshee calls for help and they send out a squad, they'd mention, oh, by the way, it was it was Banshee who called for help, you know, he's really waiting for you. But he goes into the whole explanation of his whole spirit of variance thing, and then you know, get ready for a quote here, because I think this is important. He says that he's, quote, sensed a great and terrible adjustment in the fabric of Krakoa, 
One link shattered, another formed. Something evil gestates in this building. I guess that happens when you have booty calls. Our benefactor, who would be Mother Righteous, presumably, has a- asked us to investigate. He doesn't wash the sheets. Ugh. Yuck. <laughs> oh, my God. I guess, well, you just kill the sheets and then you resurrect them. That's all you have to do here on Krakoa. Yeah. Well, anyway, this prophecy, if that's what it is, is all very vague, but I presume is connected to the whole Nightcrawler, horns, morphogenic, field situation. And what What do you make of this this oddness? The It's overwritten. To be honest, I don't know why you don't just give a straight answer. Like, you say that uh, Warlock is, you know, I sense Warlock in there. The, the way it's written is just weird, right? He's like, hey, help me investigate this mystery, and then I'm just going to um, vaguely describe what's going on. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's a size spurrier thing, I think. He's kind of, like, in, in my mind, probably not completely fair, but in my mind, he's kind of towards the Steve Orlando edge of things. Right, you have some writers who are pretty much straightforward, and then you have the Steve Orlando end of things, and I find Size Barrier be kind of in that direction. Yeah, I mean, there's times when this is appropriate, right? When you've got like a mystical beast that's not going to tell you a straight. Yeah, and I guess this is this is Banshee as Vox Ignis, so he's got some mystical astral planish thing going on. I just assume that the Banshee persona, maybe this is the Vox Ignis speaking. Uh, in in this panel, I think he does have the the, the flaming head yeah. look to it. Yeah, the the blue flames instead of the the orange flames of the spirit of vengeance. I just would have liked the characters to be like, "Hey, can we talk to Banshee?" <laughs> 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 bullshit. Yes, there is no Banshee, only Zool. Yeah, exactly. Now, I mean, I don't get it. Uh, basically, they imply that um, something is possessed Warlock, and because of that, it's disconnected from. Um, from the Doug, other, yeah. Yeah, from Doug Ramsey. So, yeah, so our, our legionnaires here try to use that booty call gate to enter the narthex, but it it dodges, it wiggles away from them, which is not something these gates are known to do. And kind of longish story short, it, Warlock is doing this. We know that he's been very connected to the island since way, way back. We had that revelation slash retcon, depending how you want to look at it, that showed that Doug and Warlock hadn't trusted Xavier to begin with, like way back before House of X. So the Warlock has been kind of integrated early on, and that's how they messed with the pit. That's how they've done lots of things. So now, though, Warlock is still connected with the island, but he's disconnected from his self-friend Doug, which feels like a really, really big deal, because these two have been you know, tight for a long, long time. That's been a huge part of Doug's character, is him and Warlock being a thing. So this feels like it should be huge. I don't know. It doesn't feel in this book like it is huge, at least not yet, but it feels like it should be. So Vox Ignis says of Warlock that, quote, go with this again, he is no longer inside your soul, this is the Doug, because something else has slithered into his. What do you think is going on there? It's so it's so out of left field that I just have no idea. My guess is that this is connected to the whole death of Warlock's dad, and we saw some strangeness in the astral plane back when we were inside the altar inside Legion's head. So I figure it's got to be connected to that, but it's another Something weird little thing. Phalanx virus. Oh, yeah, phalanx. Yeah. Yep. So that's all we have with this group. And now we go back to we to rejoin Nightcrawler and friends who were about to you know fight that weird angel. And they, they get into a fight and they kind of do pretty well at first, right? The Black Knight especially is being very effective. We see how the Black Knight has to use these angry, dark emotions to power her magic, which is the Black Knight, so that's good to see. 
but Kurt kind of flips out and goes, again, we talked about one panel being you know particularly good in some of these issues. There's one really amazing panel of Kurt just kind of going really ah, 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 evil and starting to kind of paraphrase Shakespeare and talk about, you know, let us drink its hot blood, which is not how Kurt usually talks. So he's clonked on the head by the Black Knight, and Angel uses that opportunity to escape. So that I was did a weird like this scene. scene. I thought this was good, but the one thing I did laugh about was Berserker Nightcrawler because he's still, you know, a toothpick. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> okay, dude, like you're you're kind of overselling your capabilities. Like, even if you are tough, I think you have you present zero threat to the uh, Angel monster. Yeah. Well, this this panel emphasizes his claws. It emphasizes these spikes on his shoulder, which I thought at first were on his jacket, but they seem to be growing up through his jacket from his shoulders. Did he always have – well, not always, always, but has did those spikes come along with his horns, I guess? No, it seems like he's further mutating. Brandy, Brandy new. Okay. Okay, that's interesting. Again, really cool panel. should check that out. So, we get a data page from Beast to X-Force, and it turns out that Black Knight, Jackie Chopra, is a mutant. It feels kind of old-fashioned to find out that you know somebody who's been outside the X-Men universe turns out to be a mutant, right? There's been all those rumors through the years that, oh, is Spider-Man a mutant? Is this character a mutant? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. So to have Jackie Chopra turn out to be secretly a mutant is, is kind of a nice throwback. And this was found out by Gene and Sink during the events of Death of Doctor Strange. Did you happen to read that series? No, but I, I kind of want to now. It was a, a good series. I remember Jim and I enjoyed it. Uh, but so Jackie Chopra did show up in there. I don't think anything in that book indicated that she was a mutant or that anyone knew she was a mutant, but I'm, I'm curious to go back and flip through and, and see if that was planted there or if this is a very recent retcon. So as far as Beast is concerned, her power is as yet undetermined. So Jean and Sink, you know, Sink, pro- you know, sure, using Jean's powers could kind of sense around her mind there was a mutant thing going on. I didn't know that Gene had mutant detecting powers, but I guess so. I'll go with it. But nobody told Jackie Chopra, by the way, sweetie, you know, you might want to know this, you're a mutant. So then we jump past our last scene we discussed on Krakoa, and it turns out that, no worries, Jackie figured it out all on her own. And the nature of her power, it turns out that she causes regular humans to manifest mutant powers temporarily. Now, it's not clear, does she give them a mutant gene? Does everybody have a mutant gene? It only needs to express itself. So this seems like it could be a big deal about the nature of humanity and, you know, mutants. But I, I don't think we're going to get too deep into that. Yeah, it seems to be implied that everyone has a mutant gene and it's either active or inactive. And her ability is Which would completely activate. upend this part of the Marvel Universe, right? If that was Correct. true. Well, and Orcus. That would seem huge. Yeah, Orcus's whole thing would be, yeah, I don't know. This did this did feel like maybe too big to to actually be true, but it's kind of on the page, right? Like this is the size of your idea that like we're all secret mutants. We just um, either it's activated gene or not, and this character can activate them. Which is a very cool thing to think about, and I'm sure lots of people are crafting all sorts of theories about this now. But the fact that it was kind of told in what seems like a throwaway line in a, a, a let's call it a second tier. Uh, X book makes me think it's probably not going to be the next big thing. But, you know, planting seeds for maybe some writer will pick up in the future. Sounds like fun. Captain America, my favorite X-Men character. 
<laughs> oh, that would be fun. So all all these people who she touched kind of got these mutant powers for an hour, right? So one guy we find out, and again, it gets kind of goofy here. One guy shoots ice beams out of his elbows, which is a very specifically goofy thing to do. Another one turns invisible, but only from the waist up, also very goofy. And these people, I guess they had a, a rapid test, kind of like, uh, you know, some tests we all have been picking up from our drugstores lately. Uh, and I guess the, the second line appears, which shows, yep, you test positive for an X gene, but you wait an hour after the touch, the powers go away, and the positive X gene test goes away too, which is kind of interesting. And again, that goes to whatever theory you want to go with on how uh, Chopra's powers work. But it seems like someone whose powers are messing about with how mutant powers manifest could also be connected to Nightcrawler and Angel's situation, right? As far as we know, she's never touched Nightcrawler. I mean, unless she went through that booty call portal. Uh, I guess it's been the uh, turnstile layer, like a subway. Uh, maybe that's the situation. We know she came to visit Angel. And if you look at those flashback panels, they do shake hands. So his monstrous form manifests right after they shake hands. So maybe if she touches a mutant, she like supercharges their mutant genes. What do you think of that theory? I like it. It was a little unclear what they were trying to imply here. Like how basically they said it seems like Orcus has somehow co-opted your power and is using it to supercharge mutants to help their agenda of advocating to say that mutants are threats to humanity, right? Because they make ref- they did it with Angel and then they've done it with, I guess, a few others. And but I was like, how how would that happen, right? Yeah, we haven't seen Orcus being behind the scenes making Jackie go anywhere, so I'm not sure how that would work. So we get Pixie putting a name on this whole situation. She calls it Mythomancy, and there's a whole again, I think, kind of overwritten speech of hers about how making stories become real and and that kind of thing. It, it seemed a bit much to me. So that's the end of that scene. We get a cutaway to Charles Xavier's bedroom, where he is visited by the ghost of Christmas past. Wait, sorry, wrong notes. Uh, that's a different guy who looks like Charles Xavier in a different movie entirely. This is the disembodied spirit of Charles Xavier's son, the mutant called Blindfold. Remember, she doesn't even have a real body anymore. She's purely astral, purely spirit. And they have this, in his dream, I think, is a fairly long conversation that boils down to, again, kind of overwritten, Blindfold tells Charles, hey, you should be nicer to Legion. Yes. And by the way, Legion is working really, really hard at not accidentally killing everyone and destroying the universe, so you should be nice to him. Is that about what it boils down to? I I think the dynamic of the Xavier-Legion relationship is intriguing, but Blindfold, yeah. (laughs) She seems to, yeah, I just wasn't that impressed with the like, he's trying really hard, you should be proud of him for that speech right it just didn't grab me in any way like a teenager basically lecturing you relationship has been a theme that legion xavier relationship in this book and also in that that precursor book way of x when he was showed up there during that one you know massacre scene in one of the bars we know they've been trying to talk about that relationship and how it could possibly be healed especially with xavier being you know a manipulative jerk throughout this whole era so speaking of manipulative jerks as soon as Blindfold leaves, he wakes up from his dream, Charles does, and he accesses his computer and says something about looking at codename Daedalus, which I'm sure that's not ominous at all. So that'll that'll be just fine. That'll be that'll be no problem whatsoever. Any speculation on what codename Daedalus or maybe it's Daedalus 
you know, you know, Icarus is Icarus and Daedalus, that kind of thing. Any idea what that might be? I, I, I don't know where that comes from. Maybe I'm supposed to, but it, yeah, it seems like something to contain Legion, but I, that was yeah. the story where the uh, the father and son had escaped from the labyrinth where the Minotaur had been. Mm-hmm. I guess the Minotaur was maybe a, a symbol in the pre- previous book too. I'd have to check that. But then they need to fly off the island and they make these wings out of feathers and wax. And the dad says, hey, kid, make sure you don't fly too high. And of course, the kid does fly too high, you know, thinking, you know, over overusing his powers, you might say, goes too high, the sun melts his wings kid plunges to his death. So that's the that's the myth they're referring to. How exactly that's going to play out here, don't know, but it is a father-son thing. It is a using your powers too much thing. So we can see where there are resonance. And now we get our final scene, which shows Kurt, Pixie, Dr. Nemesis, and Black Knight Jackie Chopra all teleporting into, of all places, Bavaria, Germany. And I guess off-panel, they've tracked the mutagenic spell that's been cast on Kurt as coming from this area. Details again, very hazy. Go ahead. What do you think? I, I don't on? think it's as hazy as it looks. I did struggle at first, but the, I think the answer is shown in the art. So you see Pixie with her soul blade kind of pointing somewhere. And that blade uh-huh. we've seen in, in other issues. She has kind of the ability to track magic. It, it's sort of a, I don't know what you call it, but basically it's like a compass. It'll point to the source of whatever she's seeking. That works for me. I'll take it because I don't need a whole other scene of you know them you know tapping on a computer and, and figuring things out. Yeah. So I just like why are they going to Germany? Right, it made no sense to me. And then I was like, oh yes, right. She's she's a tracker. We've seen that in other kind of Legion of X issues. So they know they're close. They they poke around a bit, and I like the bit where Kurt scares a group of locals who thinks that he must be Krampus. <laughs> Happy holidays, everyone! It's a Christmas issue, uh, and and Kurt recognizes the area somewhere he's been before. Hmm, this looks familiar. And then on the final page turn, they run into Kurt's mother. And now, careful everybody, when I say Kurt's mother, I don't mean Mystique, who was his birth mother. I mean the, quote, mother who found him as a tiny baby when Mystique kind of abandoned him to, you know, die of exposure. Oops. And uh, this woman who raised him before the whole Mystique retcon was announced. This is, her name is Margali Zardos. She's a powerful sorceress and sometime enemy of Doctor Strange. In fact, sometimes she's called herself the Sorceress Supreme. She never had a, like official title and the whole Sorcerer Supreme thing, but that's what she calls herself at least. And it might be worth noting that Margali herself has these two big, beautiful ram's horns. So maybe that's a hint that Kurt's horns are connected to her. In fact, t- to me, she looks a lot like the dad character in the comic book saga, if you've read that one. I would give Sai some props if he decided to like retcon the retcon <laughs> this issue was like that would be great to you she's not actually your mother <laughs> oh yeah then you gotta have a whole take back fight in every book they gotta undo each other that'll be great the other thing that's kind of weird about this so i've always thought nightcrawler was just a cool character the teleportation power just being neat um but when i was reading some old um some old like 70s and 80s x-men i read this kind of issue series of issues where he was you know going back to spend time with margali and i guess she has like a daughter that was like a love interest of kurt's back then and that was like okay. super cringy and weird to me of that era yeah. so, like, uh, kind of, so ever since then i've been like i can't really actually like i think i've seen some videos like that, that on the much. internet yeah yeah super super <laughs> wacky so i for that reason i don't actually want to see the retcon going back mm-hmm. i was trying to be like well they're not 
biological siblings, <laughs> so it's okay. That that sounds like something that would be on the uh, the manga this anime podcast. Weird. They love yeah. that trope. Yeah, everybody loves. Um, God, who's that guy? That uh, this is embarrassing. X Men guy. Who's the guy that are, that basically came up with these characters? Um, help me out here, Jason. Oh, and he's still writing issues, and I'm always bitching about why they're still giving him issues. Is it Fabian Nisaiza? No, God, <laughs> no, Chris, not Chris Claremont. Claremont, thank you. Yes. Oh, you do mean Chris Claremont? Yes, I do mean okay. Chris Claremont. Yeah, the big guy, the big yeah. guy. Yeah, he's kind of a, kind of a major uh, major figure here in X Men Land. Correct, correct. That really dropped him down in my my eyes when he was like doing this whole like sibling slash cousins romance thing. But I don't know. Yeah, I know sometimes we like to do those, you know, look back at an old series things if nothing's coming out. I don't think we'll be looking back at that particular time of Nightcrawler's life. Sounds kind of creepy to me. I, I'm not the biggest history buff like Jim, but um, I was like 70s. I don't think this was kosher in the 70s, right? But Well, anyways. lots of things happened in the 70s. Yeah, it was it was Okay. Moving on from our sus conversation, I don't even have carbon monoxide to blame for it. I'm actually just I'm talking. I'm just going to say we, we are against incest, just like we're against Nazis. <laughs> and Nazi incest, right out. Don't all even want to talk about these it. hot takes. I don't on. even know why you even brought it up. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Pressing forward from there. So our next issue is going to be titled Righteous Mother, which seems like maybe a slightly too cute reference to both Mother Righteous and also probably to Margali here. And once again, this next issue is going to be the final issue of this series for a little while as Legion of X will turn into Nightcrawlers, plural, for the three-issue Sins of Sinister run. Do you think Margali is um, secretly Mother Righteous? Uh, That would be kind of lame. I would find find that lame because, I mean, she does have magic things and magic next to the astral plane. I don't know. I, I I would think, I don't really know that much about Margali, so seeing her didn't make me go, ooh, the way some people might have. So, I'm your hoping Righteous- Your astral plane does not have to look like your real appearance. We have seen that. I've heard that, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, so overall, what do we think of this book? Like I said, I like the art this time a lot better than last. I, I think I gave the artist- I probably was slightly unfair to him last time when it was just, hey, astral plane is weird. I can go with that. Uh, this time, the flashback scenes all look great. That one panel of Nightcrawler about to lose his stuff, that was fantastic. But the story here is starting to lose me a little bit. There's just too many moving parts. I'm a simple man. We have Kurt with his horns. We have Banshee with his powers. We have Warlock with whatever's going on with him. We have Legion with his whole stuff. We have the Black Knight being a mutant. Everything's really complicated here. So I'm hoping this next issue is going to take these 75 plot threads and start to show me how, oh, they're really all different aspects of the same one or two things to make me make me feel like the book has a little more cohesion. I love I think the art's a lot better in this issue than in X-Men Red. I, I really, really like this artist and what he is doing in the book. So most of this score is going to be based on just turning pages and thinking it looks cool. Um, but that being said, I'm with you. Like the plot's a little convoluted. I can follow it. I do appreciate tying up in you know, other characters. And I really do like the Black Knight and, you know, the, the dual Black Knight character. So that cool concept. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I'm going to say seven, eight. I'm not going to go too crazy high based on that. Okay. I'm I'm really close. I'm going to say it has more good than bad. It's it's not one of my favorites of the current X titles. It's still kind of certainly below Red and below Immortal and maybe below the, the flagship X-Men title, depending on how things are going there. But it, it's it's still, you know, good enough. We're definitely going to keep going with this 
and see how it turns out next issue. I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10. Right turn, Clyde. And that's that's totally where I rank it. It's definitely not a top three book, um, but I would read this every day over X Force. I don't get angry reading this. I've I've never been a size Spurrier fan, but I like this better than some of his other stuff. I I think he's getting a little bit too florid in certain passages, but only occasionally, and enough for me to say, okay, I, I get it, and get back to the good stuff. So a, a pretty good book. There, there are moments where I do chuckle. Maybe that's why I tend to think that this is better. If you like size humor, then maybe you, you like this more than other people. I actually thought it was really hilarious when Pixie was like, wow, you're really goth. <laughs> <Black> Knight. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's kind of funny. <laughs> that, that is a thing Pixie would say. It is in character. Okay, those are our books for this week. So next week, we have three books that we were probably going to discuss. We have X-Men Annual number one, which is written by Steve Fox, who has done the X Men '92 House of XCI book, which is kind of a humor, humorous retelling of House of X, but if it were the '90s X Men. He's done some Marvel Unlimited Infinity comics. He's done an Edge of Spider Verse story about a fashion designer version of Spider Man called Web Weaver. That was the only thing that I've really read of his. Jim and I talked about that, but this annual appears to focus on Firestar. So is that going to be great? Is that going to be not so great? We'll find out. We'll talk about that next week. Second book for next week is Sabretooth and the Exiles, number two. So we'll see what uh, Victor Laval has in store for uh, Creed and Company. And then we have Wolverine, number 28. Going back to that whole, you know, Beast is breaking bad and has just been arrested, at least in the the pages of X-Force, not X-Files, X-Force. And in the cover of this shows Logan being tossed into the pit. So we'll find out if that's just a cover misdirect or if that's really going on. So sound like a plan there, Ruben? Yep. Sounds good. Not okay. excited about any of those, but I, I will read all of them. Oh, wait, 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 wait to sell it. Wait to forward promote there, Ruben. <laughs> Great. <laughs> okay. Well, as always, folks, we invite you to you know read along with us and to follow us on Twitter at WS Marvel Comics to visit our website, weirdsciencemarvelcomics.com, where you'll find other reviews, written views of some of these books, usually by uh, by our buddy Gabe. And uh, until next week, go read X-Men comics.